ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 20th of February. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's accusing Russian President Vladimir Putin of killing her husband with the nerve agent Novichok. Yulia Navalny says she'll not give up her husband's fight for a free Russia and is urging people to stand with her and not give up. The messages are part of a pre-recorded video posted to YouTube. The Kremlin is denying any involvement with Mr Navalny's death. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. Three days after her husband was found dead in an Arctic penal colony where he was serving over 30 years in prison, Yulia Navalny has launched a scathing attack on Russian President Vladimir Putin. In a nine-minute video, she accused Putin of murdering her husband and said Russian authorities were hiding his body so that traces of the nerve agent Novichok could disappear. Three days ago, Vladimir Putin killed my husband, Alexei Navalny. Putin killed my children's father. Putin took away the most dear thing I have ever had, the closest and most loved man. But what is more, Putin took Navalny away from you. Somewhere in a colony in far north, beyond the Arctic Circle, in eternal winter, Putin killed not just a man, Alexei Navalny. Together with him, Putin wanted to kill our hopes, our freedom, our future. The Kremlin denies any involvement in Navalny's death. Its spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, described recent comments from the West as unacceptable and obnoxious. With his anti-corruption investigations and protests around electoral fraud, Navalny was seen by many as the last great hope for a democratic Russia. Now his widow is calling on his supporters to help her continue the fight for freedom in their homeland. I will continue the work of Alexei Navalny, continue to fight for our country. I urge you to stand next to me, to share not only my grief and endless pain which has enveloped us and does not let us go. I ask you to share the rage with me, rage, anger, hatred towards those who dared to kill our future. I address you with Alexei's own words in which he believed very much. It is not shameful to do little, it is shameful to do nothing. Another Russian opposition politician, Vladimir Karamurza, is currently serving 25 years in prison for speaking out against Putin's war in Ukraine. Like Navalny, he was previously poisoned, in his case twice, and there are now grave fears for his safety inside the Russian prison system. His wife Yevgenia has told the ABC she has no doubt that Putin was behind Navalny's death. Make no mistake, this was a political assassination, a murder carried out in cold blood, and the responsible is Vladimir Putin and the system that he's built with all its cogs. The reason Alexei Navalny had to be eliminated like that is because he was a very strong opponent of Vladimir Putin and refused to back down, refused to be silenced. Evgenia Karamoza, wife of Russian political prisoner Vladimir Karamoza, speaking there with our Europe correspondent Steve Kinane. Australia's Navy will be dramatically reshaped with an increase in the number of new, smaller warships and a reduction of the troubled Hunter-class frigate program. The federal government will unveil its plans today for continuous naval shipbuilding, but it's claiming to have uncovered a $20 billion funding hole inherited from the coalition. Defence correspondent Andrew Green reports from Sydney. 
On a regional presence deployment north of Australia, HMAS Warramunga conducts a naval gun firing while at sea. She's one of eight ageing Anzac-class frigates in the Royal Australian Navy, due to be retired well before the next fleet of warships will enter service. Dr Michael Shoebridge is a former defence official, now with Strategic Analysis Australia. The most heavily arming nation on the planet that looks like it could engage in war is China in our region. So we need a navy, and at the moment the navy's ships are ageing, and fragile, and no one will join a navy without ships. This morning, Labor will release its long-awaited response to a surface fleet review it first commissioned last April. It'll include plans to double the current number of naval combatants and get them into service sooner than planned. Michael Shoebridge again. This can't be done with the existing budget plans that are in place. The defence organisation is already broke, it's got too much in its suitcase. So to get these new ships and to get them sooner is going to be a big budget increase. Ahead of the release of the document, Labor claims to have uncovered a $20 billion budget hole in Australia's massive hunter-class frigate program. The plan to build nine advanced anti-submarine warships was slated to cost $45 billion. It's now close to $65 billion, or roughly $7 billion per ship. The ABC's confirmed that British-designed frigates will survive, but only six will be built. Shadow Defence Minister Andrew Hastie. We've seen this review take much too long. It was meant to be short and sharp, but it's actually long and blunt. And that's a problem. So we want to see greater leadership from this government on defence and also on border security. Details of smaller warship programs, including the troubled offshore patrol vessels being built in Western Australia, remain unknown. Late last year, the Surface Fleet Review team sought options from several international companies on building a new fleet of corvettes. It also received an unsolicited proposal put forward by British company Babcock to construct a light frigate. Andrew Green reporting. High-powered weapons are fueling deadly violence in Papua New Guinea, with the country reeling from a second deadly massacre in as many months. Dozens were killed in an ambush in the nation's highlands on Sunday. It's an area that's experienced regular tribal fighting in recent years. The ABC's PNG correspondent Tim Swanston is in Port Moresby. Police are still uh, firming up exactly what's happened. As far as the death toll as well, that's been moving because of what police described as effectively an incorrect headcount, unfortunately. But at this stage, we believe that 49 people have been killed on Sunday's violence. Police have described it effectively as an ambush. They say that one of the tribes that's been warring with another for effectively the last two years was preparing an attack when they were ambushed. Um, now, they do say that most of those killed were effectively hired guns or mercy. These are young people who are, you know, are contributing to the tribal violence there. As far as how this really happens, I mean, ultimately, they can be started all, over all sorts of disputes, you know, over politics or land or intermarriage issues and the like. But ultimately, what's changing here and what's really caused such a dramatic escalation and concern across the country is the use of these high-powered guns that are making their way into Papua New Guinea. Well, just how bad is the gun problem in PNG? 
Yeah, it's it's truly horrendous. I mean, in Sunday's attack, the uh, police superintendent in the area said that tribesmen had access to guns like M16s, AR15s, as well as pump-action shotguns. During uh, a spate of violence just in the middle of last year, there was a snap lockdown for about three months or so, where police tried to control the flow of weapons into communities. But clearly, as a result of Sunday's violence, we know that guns and, and ammunition is still making its way into those villages. When I was visiting up there in September last year, you know, some police told me that they're effectively facing villages with a cache of bullets. So police are ultimately very fearful for their lives as they go around their police work. Some say that they were uh, almost killed on Sunday as they were trying to recover bodies and restore some order. So the, the real issue will be is not only police resourcing, but how police are able to try and better respond when they feel that they're quite outgunned against villages and communities in the province. So the type of guns that you're talking about too, the AR-15, that's a, a lightweight semi-automatic rifle, something you associate with the military. How is the PNG government responding to this violence? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, Police Commissioner David Manning said that legislation was going to be effectively rushed through Parliament to try and give police greater powers. For him, he feels it's an issue of trying to ensure that police, uh, you know, are, are, are feel confident that they can effectively exercise powers like shoot-to-kill powers when they feel that, uh, you know, their lives are under threat. He's described what's happened on Sunday as an act of domestic terrorism. It was effectively language that he was using last year during much of the uh, escalating tribal fighting that we saw at the time. As far as the government we know that Cabinet are likely to be meeting tomorrow to put together further plans in how to respond, as well as sending additional resources and, and officers, both from police and defence, to the region. But of course, you know, like I said, even when police are able to use deadly force, uh, they're of course understandably very hesitant to stop these active tribal fights. I spoke to one man yesterday as far as his confidence of how police and government are responding. He uh, didn't want to be named, but he said, look, a lot of people were killed in the attack. This is anger. They'll continue these tribal fights. Said the government should have intervened a long time ago. They're not doing anything and people are being killed. So there's not a lot of confidence there on the ground that government and police will actually be able to respond and to be able to get a handle on these escalating tribal fights. Tim Swanston there. Victorian residents say they're sick of waiting for their damaged roads to be fixed. Dozens of roads across the state are taking more than a year to be repaired, with damage made worse by recent heavy rain and floods. Adding to the problem, the escalating cost of materials and declining number of quarries. Erin Somerville reports. School bus driver David Wartman has been driving Grania's roads in northeast Victoria his whole life. There's even one named after his family. But he doesn't remember a time when they were in as bad condition as they are now. Because of the pothole situation, it's very difficult if um, you're striking oncoming traffic that are trying to dodge potholes and then that causes a danger. Granular locals have been waiting more than a year for their broken main road to be fixed and their patience is wearing thin. The road toll is increasing which is terrible. We need further investment in rural roads from federal and state governments and local governments. Northeast Victorian farmers who've driven these country roads for decades like Ken Starr agree that they're worse than ever. A lot of people are dodging the, the holes 
and not seeing cars coming. Sometimes they're on the wrong side of the road as well. Pretty dangerous. Vic Roads data shows more than 60 roads across the state have taken over a year to be repaired. Motorists are usually met instead with speed and weight limits, traffic lights and single lanes. That's despite the Transport Department launching a $770 million road maintenance blitz that's patched more than 370,000 potholes last year after heavy rain and floods and also rolled out new contracts. The ABC asked the Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen at a press conference if she thought the state's road maintenance efforts were acceptable. Obviously the schedule has to be adjusted in some parts of the state because of the significant additional damage that was done as a result of those summer weather events. Now there's questions over how the state can keep up with the road maintenance rush as Victorian quarry numbers drop due to long and costly approvals processes. Each Victorian needs around eight tonnes of quarry materials every year to support roads and infrastructure. But industry leaders like Construction Materials Processes Association General Manager Dr Elizabeth Gibson warns road materials are becoming more scarce. We're beginning to see the signs of that with this 14% increase in prices. Victoria's Department of Transport and Planning's annual report last year showed it fell more than 25% short of its regional road area treatment target due to increased market prices combined with heavy rain and more than 45% short of target for roads in inner Melbourne. The state's exploring recycled materials like fabric, glass and construction demolition waste to help supplement quarry products for roadworks. Residents like Grania's Robert Cowan just want them fixed. There's just more and more deaths that are just waiting to happen because of these roads. Robert Cowan, a resident of Grania, ending that report by Erin Somerville. The South Australian government will attempt to change the law to ensure one of the men involved in the notorious Snowtown killings is supervised when he completes his jail sentence. The move has been welcomed by prominent lawyers and victim advocates, as Oliver Gordon reports. Between 1992 and 1999, 11 people were murdered, including eight whose bodies were found in a bank vault in Snowtown, north of Adelaide. The murders, known as the Bodies in the Barrels killings, shook the country and eventually formed the basis of the film, Snowtown. You ever shot a gun before? Feel good? Mark Raymond Hayden is one of four men jailed over the Snowtown murders. The 65-year-old, who was imprisoned for assisting the murderers in covering up the crimes, is due for release in May, but the parole board will meet today to decide whether he should be released sooner. The prisoner's imminent return to the community has swung the South Australian government into action. South Australian Premier Peter Malinowskis. There is a need, in our view as a government, to act with a degree of uh, urgency, not in a panicked way, but in a prudent uh, and timely way to get legislation through the parliament so we can maximise the likelihood of keeping South Australians safe. Hayden is not automatically deemed a high-risk offender under current laws. So the government will today introduce new legislation to broaden the definition of a serious and high-risk offender to include people who have assisted in murders and sexual crimes or in covering them up. Human rights barrister Claire O'Connor SC has welcomed the move. Some people would expect that a human rights lawyer might turn around and say that this is breaching someone's rights, but rights and responsibilities belong to people in prison and belong to the community at large. So this really strikes the balance, you think? I think it does. All it does is extend 
the already existing legislation, which has got bipartisan support and has been in place for a decade here, extend it to include another crime. That's all that's occurred. And it's not it's not a minor crime. You know, aiding and abetting that horrific event um, warranted the sort of penalty that was given to Mr Hayden, which is a very long term of imprisonment. It's not the only way the South Australian government is trying to manage Hayden's release. The state's Attorney-General, Kaya Ma, has applied to the Supreme Court to have Hayden placed on an extended supervision order, which could restrict where he lives and what he does. Whatever the case, victim advocate Michael O'Connell hopes the families of those killed in the Snowtown murders are listened to. His victims have had a life sentence. They deserve justice and justice will be done when this man is kept in the circumstances where the community is safe. The South Australian Parliament is expected to debate the proposed changes when it sits today. Oliver Gordon reporting. Authorities are reminding us all about the best ways to stay safe from lightning after four people were injured during a fierce storm yesterday. The patients aged in their 20s and 30s remain in hospital and are lucky to be alive after they sought shelter under a tree in Sydney's Botanic Gardens. And as Annie Guest reports, it's one of the worst places to seek refuge. The heavy storm hit Sydney and parts of central and northern New South Wales, wiping out power to 20,000 homes. Lightning struck four people in Sydney's Botanic Gardens. The two men and two women in their 20s and 30s were taken to hospital with burns and heart problems. I think it's um, horrific that in Sydney, in New South Wales and Australia, that incidents like this occur um, and my heart and thoughts go out to them and their families. Dr Rebecca Hoffman is a spokeswoman for the College of GPs. She says about 100 Australians are injured in lightning strikes each year. A handful don't survive lightning strikes is primarily going to be an injury to the nervous system and it can often have impact both on the brain and the brain tissue and on the nerves. Lightning strikes may also lead to cardiac arrest, so a heart attack. It can also lead to a loss of consciousness and may have temporary or permanent neurological, so nerve or brain injury as well. Dr Hoffman says the ability to survive a lightning strike depends on its severity, location and whether the victim is also injured by falling branches. The group in Sydney's Botanic Gardens had sheltered under a tree that was hit by lightning, which worries Pat Murch from the SES. So a significant number of injuries do result from people being on or near trees during lightning storms. Because their ground and land becomes uh, electrified, then unfortunately they are injured as a result. So as the, the lightning moves through that object, it obviously will spread out across the ground. And again, water is a great conductor. So if it is wet on the ground, it could potentially spread a little bit further than you're anticipating. He says trees attract lightning as it seeks the quickest pathway to the ground. Things that should be avoided when you're outdoors are things like trees. The thing that we always recommend when people are out and about when there is significant weather coming is to seek shelter. The best place for people to seek shelter is indoors, if at all possible. And if you do find yourself stuck outside when you're starting to hear things like thunder rolling through, then try and get as low as possible if you can't make it indoors. So um, try and get yourself off any hills or any high points in the area that you're in, uh, because again, the lightning will potentially um, try and find something else that's a little bit higher than you. And the SES reminds people to heed early warnings and move out of harm's way. 
Any guest reporting there, that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. He had a vision of a democratic Russia, of a nation that could sit alongside its European neighbours. And he was a constant thorn in the side of the Russian president. So now Alexei Navalny is dead, who will take on Vladimir Putin? And who's next on his hit list? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.